And please take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me once again to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 and 12 this morning. As we approach this text, we might ask ourselves, what what practical difference does uh, being a follower of Jesus Christ make in your daily life? What real difference does it make for you to be known uh, in your community, in, in your workplace, among your family members as a committed Christian? Uh, Peter is turning to answer that question in these verses. After talking to us about our identity uh, from the beginning of the letter up till now, in many ways, these verses are a kind of pivot point. So where now Peter is going to focus in a more uh, intense way on how our identity as believers and as the people of God shapes how we live in the world, in various relationships uh, that we'll look at in the weeks to come. Uh, take a look, before we read, take a look at verses 11 and 12, and you'll see, you'll see the main concern. It's a call to holiness, And the call has both a negative and a positive dimension to it. Verse 11, negatively, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then positively in verse 12, maintain uh, honorable conduct. And then also notice that there are two themes in these verses that really serve to frame this call to holiness First is in verse 11, where the, the call to, hold, to, to abstain from passions of the flesh occurs in the context of war, because the call to holiness is war. And then notice in verse 12, this call to maintain honorable context, uh, conduct takes place in the context of a watching world, because holiness is witness. So those are the two themes we're going to consider together this morning. Holiness as war and holiness as witness. But before we read uh, 1 Peter, uh, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures, this living and abiding word that you have kept for us. And we pray that as... The gospel is proclaimed, that is your good news is preached. We would behold your glory shining brightly in the face of Jesus Christ. And that by that sight, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And as we hear this this call to holiness, help us to understand that Because of your grace, because of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus, it is safe for us to talk about living holy lives, understanding that this is not of us. This is the result of your grace at work in us, enabling us and strengthening us to answer this call. So help us to do that. To the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's hear 
what God has to say to us today. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, or they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, many of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a remarkably helpful chapter on sanctification, God's work in us, enabling us to put away sin and live to God. And it's chapter 13. Chapter 13 describes the, the, the nature and the character and the progress of sanctification. Just a few paragraphs, so I encourage you to check it out this afternoon if you're able. But I want to read to you just one paragraph from uh, this chapter on sanctification. It says that in the Christian, sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnants of corruption, corruption in every part, and notice this language, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh, flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. It's a tremendously helpful paragraph, and it's remarkably balanced, isn't it? On the one hand, there's, there's hope and encouragement that this work of God in sanctifying us is throughout our, our whole person. Every faculty of our nature is touched by God's grace, and we're, we're being renewed in the whole person after the image of Jesus Christ. But there's also a helpful realism right alongside of that, that this change, this ongoing change in our lives remains imperfect in this life. And it will always be that way. Because some remnants of the corrupting effects of sin remain in our lives. And the confession summarizing The teaching of the Bible calls this a a continual and irreconcilable war. That's what Peter's really talking about here in, in verse 11. Look at it again with me. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, it's it's so important that we we get this right that. You know, we need to understand the, the passions of the flesh. They are not, you know, e- unique eccentricities of our um, individual personalities. The passions of the flesh are not an itch that we must scratch in order to get relief. The passions of the flesh are, are, not, are not like our, our dog Luna that some of you saw on Friday evening, uh, relatively nice puppy just desperately in need of some training to keep her in check. So what are the passions of the flesh really? Look at how Peter describes them here. He describes them as an enemy 
an enemy waging war against your soul. Not, not soul in the sense of your immaterial uh, part of your, your, your humanity, but your whole person uh, seeking your destruction. An enemy seeking your demise. And rest assured, sometimes the, sometimes the conflict, this irreconcilable war, is a, is a direct frontal assault. Uh, wrong desires that we know God forbids arising within passions like lust and greed and envy, pride and other things want to take over and destroy us. But other times, the warfare is more subtle, more covert than that. Uh, our passions can, can sneak up on us in a way. We, we can, for example, desire good things permissible things, but we can desire them in such a way that they begin to take over our lives. We can begin to over-desire. We can, we can uh, foster and cultivate idolatrous desires that in the end would destroy our souls if we gratified them as a pattern of life. But whether overt or covert, the, the desires of the flesh wage war against us and Peter's helping us understand that our hearts are the battlefield. So understand the enemy here. And the Bible talks about the devil as a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. That's not what Peter's talking about here. The Bible talks about the world as, a, as an influence that pressures us into patterns of, of, of thinking and living that are contrary to God's will for us. That's not what Peter is talking about here. The world and the devil are enemies, to be sure. But here Peter is talking about an internal enemy. The passions of the flesh. There are enemies outside of us that we need to be aware of. But we must be particularly alert to the enemy within, the remaining corruption within our own lives. So one of the ways that the Bible talks about the passions of the flesh, we could, we could say they are, the, they are worldly cravings, desires for things that are contrary to our new life in Jesus Christ. That's really what the passions of the flesh are. We are a new creature created in Christ Jesus. Our minds are, have been transformed and are being transformed by the truths of God's word. We, we love God and we desire to please God. That is a description of you if you are a Christian. By the grace of God, you know him, you love him, and you want to live for him. And yet, and yet, there are these desires, these passions that perhaps seem to arise unbidden in our lives. There are passions that rise up from within. We, we want things we should not want. We think about things we have no business thinking about. We desire things uh, that we shouldn't desire, or we desire good things in ungodly ways. And, and I don't have to try to prove that to you this morning. I thought about trying to give examples of that, and I thought, hang on a second. 
I don't have to prove this to any one of you here this morning because this is your lived experience if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ Jesus. There's an irreconcilable, continual war going on within each and every one of us. It's the war that Paul describes so helpfully in Galatians chapter 5. And I'd encourage you to turn there if you want to look at those verses. I want to reflect on them for just a couple of minutes Galatians 5, verses 16 and 17. Uh, There Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, To keep you from doing the things you want to do. A couple of comments on those verses. Notice first of all that this war within is the result of the indwelling of the spirit of Jesus Christ in your life. Yet while living in this fallen world and in these bodies that Paul calls bodies of death that are waiting to be fully redeemed. So the conflict is not because you are a miserable failing Christian who ought to know better and do better. The conflict is the result of the spirit of Jesus inhabiting your life and working within you, giving you these new desires. And and that's because the Uh, this, this irreconcilable war that results from all of this is because Paul says the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit, which I take to to mean the desires that are, are now generated in us. They're our desires, but they are the work of the spirit of Jesus Christ in our lives. And the result of these opposing desires is conflict. War. There arises within us desires, longings, urges, passions, and they are at odds with the desires of the Spirit. And let's be honest, sometimes, all too often, we gratify those desires. We indulge and feed the desires of the flesh. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for Peter or Paul to talk about this, right? There'd be no reason for Peter to say to us, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Because the reality is we do, we we think and say and do the very things we don't want to do. And at times we're left wondering, how, how did I end up here again? How am I still wrestling with this sinful pattern of thinking? How, how, how did I end up saying that once again? How did I get here? Well, friends, it's because the war is on and sin wants to have you. Now, we'll, we'll get to the call to abstain here in just a second. But some of you are probably here today, probably more than we realize, and, and you are in the thick of a hard conflict. And, and maybe, you've been, maybe you've been knocked down and you're discouraged, you're feeling like a failure, you've fallen, you've gratified the desires of the flesh instead of abstaining. And maybe you're here this morning discouraged. 
Well, there's just one thing I want you to see in Galatians 5.17 before we come back to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's Paul, Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I want you to just, like a laser, focus on those words for a second. The things you want to do. So there is this battle. And sometimes we do the very thing we know is wrong. You're, you're conscious of it. You're conscious of the failure. And it, it stings. But Paul's saying, there are things you want to do. There's a deep-seated longing in you to live for Jesus Christ. This is your heart. A desire for the things God desires for you. And those are the things that you want to do. That's what Paul is saying. Now ask yourself for a second, where did those desires come from? Did they come from the passions of the flesh? No. Did those new desires come from, from uh, you know, instinctually from you, apart from Jesus and the work of the Spirit in your life? No, these desires are a sign and evidence and testimony to the Spirit's presence in your life as he is at work in you to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. So just look, look past the daily battles for a minute and focus on that thing that you want, as conflicted as you may be at times. And that thing that you want is to be like Christ. So brothers and sisters, take heart. God, God is at work within you, yet the war is long, the war is hard, and there will be setbacks at times but rest assured, God will see you through it. And as we sang earlier, God gives the victory. Now, come back, come back with me to 1 Peter. Because we need to ask the question, okay, well, so what are we to do with the passions of the flesh? Peter gives us a very straightforward answer. He says, abstain. Paul says, do not gratify. Don't satisfy. Don't, don't feed. Um, we must not indulge. In other words, we must learn, as Paul will go on to talk about in Galatians, we, we must learn to exercise the spirit-given fruit of self-control and say no. Now, there may be times in our lives where we, we need help to do that. We need the Spirit's help, of course, but we may need external helps as well as we rely on God's work in us to free ourselves from passions of the flesh which may have their claws sunk deeply into us. But we must learn, by the grace of God, to say no. Now this language of abstinence, I'm well aware this language is anathema, in our culture right now, because to deny your passions and your desires is nothing less than to do violence to yourself. And that's because you are your desires. That's what our, that's, that's what our cultural gurus are telling all of us every day, that your desires define who you are. Your desires express your innermost, deepest self. 
And so to say no to passions and desires is to actually repress who you really are. And that will create all kinds of other problems. So the messaging goes. Dear friends, all I want to say in response to that is in light of the teaching of Scripture, that is a terrible anthropology. Actually, we can go a step further. It's actually a soul-destroying, life-killing anthropology. Because the Bible tells us that the corruption of sin runs much deeper than we might at first realize. Our desires and our passions are not neutral. They are not inherently positive and praiseworthy. They, like the rest of our human nature, are subject to corruption. You see, sin goes down deep. Sin goes down deep to the level of of what we want, what we crave, of what we feel, what we desire, what we love. And so we need to understand that just because we desire something does not mean that that something is good. There are desires, there are passions of the flesh we must abstain from. And do not make the mistake that, of thinking that I am singling out one particular group of people or individuals here. Friends, I'm talking about all of us. This is true of every single one of us in this room when it comes to our desires and the passions of the flesh. So we, we need to understand that these, this is not an inherently neutral or praiseworthy thing. There are passions of the flesh that we must abstain from, and it's going to be hard. Frankly, it's going to feel like death at times. But Peter is saying that we must do it in the power of the Spirit, because to do otherwise is actually to surrender our lives to an enemy seeking our destruction. You might be thinking, well, that's, maybe that's easy for you to say, but that's easier said than done, Pastor Jared. Well, thankfully, Peter gives us some encouragement. He actually gives us two encouragements here in verse 11 that I want you to, to be aware of as he talks to us about this war of a lifetime. Look at how he speaks to these Christians in verse 11. Beloved, like, urge you to abstain. One version of this, pardon me if this is your translation, but it says, dear friends, I urge you to abstain. And I'm led to think that that's a particularly lame translation because it doesn't really get to the heart of what Peter's trying to communicate. He wants these Christians to know that they are loved. That they are loved by God from eternity. But I think he's also communicating his own affection for them. Peter the Apostle loves these people. And he wants to communicate that up front because he knows that this call to holiness is is hard. That it's difficult and costly. He wants them to know that as they are called to this costly spiritual combat with their own sinful desires. 
And so he wants them to know that he's urging them to do this out of a heart of love, out of a heart of affection for these brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You may have not noticed this since we're taking sections at a time, but if you read through 1 Peter as a whole, you will notice that love is actually a very important theme. At the beginning of this letter, uh, Peter reminds these Christians that they are foreknown by God the Father. And you remember when we looked at that? Really, that's, that's Bible language to say you are foreloved. Before you were even born, God, God loved you with an everlasting love. And is it verse 22 of, of chapter 1 where we're called, as those who are loved, to love one another sincerely with a, with a brotherly affection? And now here's, here's Peter telling these Christians, I love you. Now, of course, we need to know that we're loved by God, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's loved us and he's demonstrated his love by giving his son for us. But we must never underestimate the importance and power of Christian love, love for one another, for staying in the fight and making progress in combat with our sin, to, to know that we, we love each other and really do want what's best for each other, to know that occasions of accountability in the household of God are never an aha, gotcha moment, but instead an expression of genuine brotherly love. We need to know this, that we really do care and we're standing Shoulder to shoulder in the fight. And so Peter urges Christians to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And he begins by reminding them, you are loved. Loved by God. Loved by the brethren. Loved by him. Uh, The second help he, he gives is the reminder once again of our identity. We are sojourners and exiles. Remember back in verse 1, elect exiles of the dispersion. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 1, live in fear throughout the time of your exile. Now here in chapter 2, verse 11, you are sojourners and exiles. So Peter, once again, wants us to reorient our self-understanding with respect to the society in which we live. He wants us to have it burned into our minds, really, that we are citizens of God's kingdom first, not primarily citizens of the society in which we live, to whatever extent those two are in opposition or conflict with one another. We are more and more to learn to think of ourselves as resident aliens in a foreign land, sojourners who recognize This place is not my final home. People who who live according to the convictions and the concerns and the commitments of another kingdom altogether. That's what's wrapped up in this language of being a sojourner and an exile. And Peter wants you to understand that it has direct implications for, for abstaining from the passions of the flesh which belong to this present evil age. 
Because you don't belong here, you don't live like that. Because by grace you've been made to be a citizen of another kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and life and joy. And so what is Peter saying at the end of the day? It all boils down to this. Be who you are. Be who you now are by the grace of God. And so that's the first thing. Holiness is war. We abstain from the passions of the flesh because we're loved and because we are citizens of another kingdom that is not of this world. Now, secondly, and uh, more briefly here, look at verse 12, because the pursuit of holiness is not just war, it's a matter of witness. The pursuit of holiness is witness. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So verse, verse 11, negative, right? Abstain, avoid it, don't indulge, don't gratify. Now verse 12, positive, maintain, maintain. It's a call to honorable conduct and good deeds. Now, uh, we mentioned this verse just a minute ago, back in chapter 1, of seven, uh, verse, chapter one verse 17, there it is. Um, we're urged to live in fear throughout the time of our exile, the fear of the Lord, because we live before the face of God. God sees all, so live appropriately, Peter is saying. And now here he says, God is not the only one watching. The world is witness too. That's what he means by Gentiles. Um, The world, the unbelieving peoples around you. The world is watching too. And so again, he talks about being in exile. And again, he talks about how we should conduct ourselves. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable. That's a an important word that Peter selects. He's being deliberate in his word choice here. It's a word that means noble, uh, virtuous, praiseworthy. It was a word that was used very commonly in pagan Greco-Roman literature that talked about civic virtue and living upright lives. And so Peter's message to Christians is, Uh, I want your conduct to be so honorable, so virtuous, that even unbelievers must acknowledge that you live uprightly. They may very well make false accusations, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. But at the end of the day, even at the day of judgment, they cannot deny it. And so the whole point, the whole point is that your life matters to your witness. Your life Matters to your witness. You know, you, you may be um, someone who's very comfortable talking about the fact that you're a Christian with the people around you. You, you may live out your faith very publicly before the eyes of others. You may be someone who loves to talk about theology and you're comfortable doing that even with unbelievers, but we need to be reminded, don't we, at times that, you know, if you're not trustworthy, you're not reliable, you're a hothead who's, you know, just ready to blow off steam at any given time, 
you're a gossiper, if conflict just follows you wherever you go and you know, on and on we can go, we need to understand this, that nobody's going to listen to you. Why is that? Because your confession is in conflict with your conduct. And your conduct matters for your witness. Peter's reminding us of that here. But if you seek humbly and imperfectly for sure to live for Jesus Christ, Peter says you can expect two things. You can expect two things. Verse 12, not just that unbelieving friends or coworkers or neighbors will take notice, that they will see your good deeds, but notice as well, some will not react positively. And Peter says you can expect that. You, you can expect that some will not react in a positive way. Notice how he says it. Keep your conduct among them honorable so that, and listen, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Notice not if they speak against you, but when. It's, it's actually an expectation that if you humbly and faithfully live for Jesus Christ, people are going to speak evil against you. You see, living out and out for Jesus Christ can get you into trouble. It will get you into hot water. Now, we, of course, we need to say Christians get themselves into trouble for all the wrong reasons sometimes. And that shouldn't be. That's inexcusable. It's a, it's a hindrance to what Peter is talking about here, bearing witness through good deeds. But Peter's also telling us here that if you live faithfully as a Christian, it, it can get you into trouble. People will take notice. So, you know, when everybody is complaining about work and you keep your head down and your mouth shut and you just keep working as unto the Lord, people notice. When the newest gossip is circulating and you refuse to participate, people notice. When your employer puts pressure on you to, you know, just, just fudge the numbers a little bit, be a little bit dishonest here so we can get compensated, and you refuse to do it, people notice. When you refuse to um, indulge in all manner of sexually immor sexual immorality, people notice. And sometimes it gets under their skin. It, it, it pricks their conscience. So you know what they do. To calm and quiet their conscience, they speak against you. They speak evil against you. They give you a cold shoulder. They push you out. They slander or mock. And some of you have been on the receiving end of this. I know because you've told me stories of these very things happening to you. And the pressure to compromise, the pressure to cave in your home, in the workplace, in the public square, to be one of the guys, to be one of the gals, the pressure to do that can be enormous. So why then? Let's ask ourselves, why should we stick our neck out, stand our ground, and live a painful life as an exile who lives by different standards and values than those of the people around us. Why do that when it inevitably means that some people are going to speak evil 
against you. What does Peter say? Do it so that when they speak evil against you, I keep saying that, when they speak against you as evildoers, this is the problem with reading different translations. One gets stuck in your head. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, there's differences of opinion about how to understand this verse, but let's start here. What, what's the day of visitation? I think the day of visitation refers to the, the last day, the return of Christ, judgment day. Okay, so how exactly will God be glorified on the day of visitation by the good deeds of his people? I think we need to recognize two possibilities, two, two ways. Okay? Certainly, certainly, if we're going to read the rest of Peter, this letter, Peter hopes that uh, some, ev- some unbelievers, even though they have spoken evil against you at some point, have nevertheless come to the point where they've come to you and said, what's going on in your life? What is the reason for the hope that you have? And perhaps in hearing your answer, they have come to Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying that on the day of visitation, these folks will be standing beside you, giving praise to God, giving glory to him for his redeeming grace, having called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. But others will persist in speaking evil against Christians, and they will glorify God nonetheless on the day of Christ's visitation. And that's because on the day of judgment, they will in the end have to concede To the glory of God's saving grace. Even as they are dispatched in the judgment to outer darkness. They must concede that the followers of Jesus lived distinctly different lives. To the praise of God's grace. See in verse 12 Peter you could miss it. It's something you could just read past. But in verse 12, Peter is reminding us of the purpose of our life. It's not a happy, comfortable life. It's not a life of success in climbing the corporate ladder. It's not a life of material wealth and the the, the collection of goods. It's not a life of popularity and celebrity. It's a life lived for God's glory. And if we remember that, though hard and costly at times, living for Jesus, living as a sojourner and exile, committed to abstaining from the passions of the flesh and maintaining honorable conduct before the eyes of a watching world, Peter is saying, that is the way you will live for the glory of God in this world. In the mundane, daily Decisions to commit to abstaining from sinful desires and by maintaining honorable conduct in your public and private life. In the end, that is how you will live for the glory of God in this world. 
And not only directly by us in obedience, but also, Peter's saying, I think through us instrumentally, either in the conversion of unbelievers that we interact with, or yes, even in their judgment, as your life leaves them without excuse on the day of visitation. So Peter's saying, you are for God's glory. And when that is the chief motive of our lives, then we will be ready to endure hard things when people speak evil against us. We'll be ready to do that if it makes much of him and displays his glory before the watching world. And dear friends, this is a, this is a truth we must internalize and understand, I think, even for our own lifetime. If not in my lifetime, then surely in our children's lifetime. It's already, hap- it's, it's already happening in every age, but we're going to see it, I think, increasingly in a visible way in our society. So, beloved, keep your purpose in view. You are for God's glory. And remember that and press on. And let me say to anyone here this morning who maybe finds themselves irritated by the life of a Christian... Now that may be, as I said a minute ago, you may have legitimate irritation because of something they're saying or doing that they shouldn't. But if that's not the case, please understand what's really going on. It's not that they think they're better than you. You know, I'll look at him, look at her. They think they're superior. That, that might be what you think, but that's certainly not what they think about themselves. As Christians, they understand they're, they're, they're sinners, they're debtors, they're in need of God's mercy every moment of every day, but they've come to Jesus and he's forgiven them and grace has erupted in their lives and now their heart's desire is to please him, to live for him. Yes, they continue to struggle with sin and yes, they sometimes still act hypocritically. Who hasn't done that? Raise your hand if you've never acted hypocritically. I don't see any hands. I'm looking away. We've all done it. But with that being said, they're trusting in Jesus and sincerely trying to follow him, and that's why they live the way they do. And so if you're here and and you've not come to Jesus yourself and People who follow Jesus get under your skin. How about instead of speaking evil against them, you consider going to one of them and asking them the question, hey, what is it that you have that I don't? What is the reason for the hope that you have? Why do you live the way that you do? And they'll give you an answer in their own words, but I can summarize it for you. I hope the answer that they'll give to you is because by God's sheer grace, I've come to Jesus Christ. And he has made me new. And he's called me a, a sojourner and an exile here in this world. And so now I abstain from the passions of the flesh and I seek to maintain honorable conduct to the glory of my Savior. And I know where I'm headed. I am headed to a world of righteousness, life, and joy. And I would love, I would love for you to join me. I hope you'll ask someone that question if you haven't yourself come to Jesus. 
So wrapping up here, call, call to holiness in verses 11 and 12. See, negatively, this call to abstain, abstain from the passions of the flesh because holiness is war. The normal Christian life is a hard-fought battle. That's a hard thing to hear, but it's also a tremendously encouraging thing to hear, isn't it? Because if you're anything like me, sometimes you ask yourself, why is this so hard? Why am I still struggling with this same rotten sin? Yes, progress is is being made. But this is how it's going to be until Jesus returns. There, There will be progress by God's grace, but the battle will rage on until the very end. So let me say to you, you're not special. (laughs) You're not unique. You're not a one-off case. This is the way it is. So press on and stay in the fight. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are waging war against your soul. And then maintain. Maintain Honorable conduct because holiness is witness. Follow Jesus in all of your life and others will notice. And Peter's reminding us some are not going to like it. It's going to be tough. You're going to experience slander, people saying wrong things about you. So get God's glory in your sights and stay focused on it. Make his glory your priority, not the praise and acceptance of man. Not a a happy and comfortable life here. God's glory manifested in a life lived for Jesus Christ because you want God to be glorified by the fruits of his grace in you and because you want to see others observing your good deeds Give glory to God on the day of visitation. And may it be the case that they give glory to God on the day of visitation by standing beside you and giving glory to God for Jesus Christ, who saved us from lives of sin and futility and has set our feet on the rock. So, beloved, Let's live for Jesus Christ. That's what God is calling us to do in this passage. And we do it in his strength by abstaining from the passions of the flesh and by maintaining Christ-like conduct, bearing witness to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the way your word uh, comforts and encourages us and at the same time convicts and challenges us. And as we said at the start, we're thankful that because of your grace, that because salvation is your work, that it's safe for us to talk about a call to holiness, to abstain and to maintain. Would you please strengthen us by the spirit of Christ in us to say no to sinful desires And if necessary, to to get the help that we need um, in our lives to separate ourselves from passions of the flesh that may have a grip on us. Pray that also you, you would help us to maintain honorable conduct. We see tragically so often these public scandals of 
of Christians who have fallen. And the world loves to make much of it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would protect each and every one of us from such scandal and that you would help us to live holy and upright lives before you with your glory ever in our view. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.